a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee along with Amy Donaldson. Today we are joined by Ian Hogue. He's a colleague of mine now and he's a man of many talents who through perseverance and drive has accomplished some very inspiring goals that I believe uh, could show people uh, what their what their potential is and what they can aspire to in their own lives if they just kind of put their minds in, to it. In other words, you're going to make us all feel bad about the goals, the resolutions oh, we've look, already set. All of us <laughs> are going to feel so inadequate after this is over, we won't even know what to do with ourselves. Okay. I can tell you right now. And he's way younger than me, which even makes it worse, but that's another story. Okay. So, Ian... Uh, thank you for being with me uh, and putting up with my nonsense. But I, um, I was, I talked to you about it already. I, I just find like, just your story is fascinating to me. But more importantly, I do believe it really can help inspire people because we all go through challenges in our lives, and sometimes we don't know what we want, or sometimes we we try to strive for goals but we don't quite reach them. And you've been able to do a lot of what you wanted to do in your life and, and still there's more that you feel like you can do and that you, you try to do as, as you know, you continue to live. So uh, tell me a little, uh, kind of let's start in the beginning. You grew up uh, in New England? Yeah, in Boston. And yeah, so I, I, uh, I was born in Boston. Um, my parents lived on a tugboat, <laughs> which is a whole nother story, right? Uh, that you haven't heard yet. But um when I was five, we moved to Israel for a year and a half. My dad was a, an engineer uh, working on lasers. Like that was his thing. He loved optics, and, and he was an electrical engineer. Um, then we moved back, went through high school in Boston, mm-hmm. went to the Naval Academy. Um, Stop right there, though. Okay. Like, so go to the Naval Academy. Don't you have to have like a congressional nomination to that? So, yes. Like, like, was that something you aspired to? How did that come about? Uh, so let's see when I was, I want to say about nine years old, my brother joined an organization called the United States Naval Sea Cadet Corps, uh, which is a great youth organization run by the Navy. It's similar to Boy Scouts, um, you know, what have you. Mm -hmm. And, um, so then when I was old enough, uh, when I was 10 or 11, um, I, I also joined and did that through, um, through high school mm-hmm. um and and some of that i think also comes from my my mother's brother so my uncle and my grandfather on my my mother's father um both of them were in the navy and so there there's some naval tradition in our family and um so i think we we're kind of carrying on that tradition in some sense and, and maybe the uh, I also grew up sailing. My, my parents had a sailboat mm-hmm. growing up. And um, How do you and, end up on a tugboat, though? How did that end up happening? <laughs> do you just live on it, or is this op- operational? It was a tax evasion scheme. <laughs> 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 because I guess in Massachusetts, 
um, you had to pay taxes on land and you had to pay taxes on any motorized vehicle. This tugboat didn't have an engine, so it was neither land nor was it a motorized vehicle. So they didn't have to pay any taxes. Okay, well, you know, that's good old American ingenuity there. There you go. So yeah. did you have other siblings besides your brother? Uh, I have a half-sister on okay. my dad's side. All right. Yeah. So, okay, so you, you, when you were in high school, uh, obviously, in order to get this uh, uh, congressional recommendation or, or appointment, you have to – you were pretty good academically? Is that kind of all, all um, along through school or no? My, my brother was a lot better than I was. Uh, so I think he kind of like paved the way for me a little bit mm-hmm. and, and having him – Already at the Naval Academy, I think helped because um, my grades sometimes were mediocre. <laughs> um, but uh, so your 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 mom and dad raised two Naval Academy uh, Academy graduates. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, they're proud of the, their sons now. Yes. Yeah. So you get to the academy. What do you? I mean, did you have a sense of what it is you wanted to do? I mean, did you did you have a plan or some goals when you reached there? And, and what and then, year is this? Like, yeah. where are we at as a country? Um, so this is, so I graduated high school in 94. Okay. Yeah. So right so, after the, so right the after first the first Gulf Persian War. Gulf War. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. Then- um, yeah. So I, I kind of remember this maybe formative moment when I read a Clive Cussler novel, um, called Raise the Titanic. And at the end, the, the, the Navy SEALs go in and, and, um, you know, they have all this high tech gear and they, they take down the, the bad guys, um, and just the way it all played out, I was like, you know what, that was that was really smart. Like the way they went about that. Mm-hmm. Like I want to do that. <laughs> so reading this book gave you the inkling that you wanted to, uh, you know, potentially be a seal. Yes. Yeah. Did you did you have any idea what it took to become one? A little bit. Yeah. Um, so that that was certainly intimidating, I guess, especially when I got to like junior year of high school. I, I, so I ran cross country in high school. Uh, cross country and track mm-hmm. and um so i was really skinny i was like 135 pounds but i could do a ton of push-ups and um sit-ups you know do calisthenics all day long um but i i, I signed up with a gym and there was a guy who was a navy seal who was training me a little bit and you know he was working on my upper body strength and it was it was kind of overwhelming. It was scary. <laughs> I would imagine, especially yeah. if you're uh, re- relatively, because you and I, you, what are you, five eight five nine? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, an average sized person, but you were trying to do a very outsized thing, or at least considering doing something like that, because I mean, seals are what, uh, like one point one percent of the uh, the people make it through that kind of training. Um, so, out of the people who who actually get to start the training, mm-hmm. uh, like twenty percent ish okay. make it through so well, okay well, so half half the people who don't make it through um they, they just quit of their own free will and then the other half that don't make it through they just get injuries their bodies just can't handle it because it, uh, it is and it's it, yeah. you know it's not uh you know it's not it's not their own shortcoming that, no. that they should feel guilty for or anything you know? so when uh what did you study when you're in the academy I studied naval architecture, so it's a subset of mechanical engineering. Okay, okay. Um, so it's, there's three deep dark secrets to naval architecture, which are how do you make it float? That's number one. Number two is how do you make it float right side up, and number three is how do you make it go from point A to point B? 
Okay. <laughs> All of those which would seem to be, you know, I guess very important because you yep. don't want to be upside down floating. Uh, so right. are we talking <laughs> ships or submarines? Yes. Well, whatever it is. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. the, the vessel. Yeah. What What um, are you thinking when you're in the Naval Academy and sort of you choose to go the SEAL route? Are you thinking <clears throat> this is what you wanted it to? Was it, did it, was it your expectation or what are you? Well, you yeah. So I wanted to do it. And then um, from the Naval Academy, it gets even more um, daunting, I, I guess, because um, at the Naval Academy, like, you're face-to-face with everybody else who wants to get into the SEAL teams. And there are, at the time, there were only 16 billets. Um, so What's a billet? A, a billet is like a, an assignment. Like when you graduate from the Naval Academy, you get your assignment. Um, sometime during your senior year, you get your assignment on what part of the Navy you're going to go into and what you're going to do. Um, so there's 16 billets for uh, the SEAL teams. And there were 42 of us competing for those 16 billets. Okay. Um, so you can imagine that the competition gets pretty steep. And when we're all face-to-face with each other, you know, all on the same campus, we know what, yeah, we all, we we all know know what those, the level the, of competition right. yes. is and, and what we need to beat to get there. Um, so I was kind of middle of the pack among those 42. And I, I didn't get a billet right out of the Naval Academy. Okay. So, so then it's, you go in, you get your uh, – because uh, there's a commission you get when you graduate, right? Right, right. So what are your ensign? Yep. Okay. And uh, So were you disappointed? Were you thinking, I'm just going to do a few years and then be done? Or what were you thinking? Um, no, I wasn't, I wasn't disappointed. Um, I okay, kind of knew where I stood. And um, so I, I realized that the fastest way to get into the SEAL teams – after that was to become a surface warfare officer on a ship and then apply for a lateral transfer. So I did that. We're going to uh, find out more about this because if you don't know anything about Navy SEALs Which most Army of us Rangers, really don't, right? What do we know when we see I movies? Know, but it, the training, <laughs> grueling doesn't even begin to describe it. It, it really does not. And, and I, um, this, this is why it's so fascinating, right? Because in order to do what you did, and uh, I guess we're giving that part away because he does get to get there. It take, it takes everything you've got and everything you you didn't even know you had uh, just to just to make it uh, to that level. We'll continue with our discussion, uh, Ian Hogue, and there is just so much more after that. It's this is this is fascinating. I can't wait to uh, have this story told. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.
We are back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, Amy Donaldson, Jason Lee, speaking today with Ian Hogue, uh, who's uh, got a fascinating story, uh, got a commission to the uh, Naval Academy, actually, followed in his brother's footsteps and that of some other relatives, uh, because uh, not everybody gets to do that. You have to get a congressional uh, uh, appointment to do that. So you you mentioned that, uh, so you, you graduate, you, you get your commission, right, even though you aspire to, uh, to become a SEAL, it doesn't quite happen, you know, right out of the box. So you have to work a little bit and you become an officer uh, on a warship. Is that how that works? Correct. Yeah. So uh, can you explain a little bit about what that is and, and, and your role? Right. So um, uh, surface warfare officer is the, the technical Navy term for all the officers on, on the warships. Um, and as, a, as an officer, you – start out as a division officer on a warship. So there's different divisions on the ship. I was in charge of the damage control division. So I had um, about 10 to 12 guys who worked for uh, sort of for me. I was really learning from them as much as probably more than, than they were learning from me. But mm-hmm. uh, but they were in charge of welding, plumbing, um, and then uh, t- also taking care of all the firefighting equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and... We were also responsible for sort of training the rest of the ship um, in in damage control, so yes. firefighting, right. responding to flooding. Uh, if something happens, like you guys get damaged. You got to repair it while 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 this is in real time. Right. So when you're doing that, okay. So um, how long do you have to do that? But and, and and actually, let me uh, stop for a second. In order to apply, you for to become a seal, and uh, one other thing. What is SEAL? What does that mean exactly? Uh, it's an acronym. Yeah, so it's an acronym for Sea, Air, Land, um, Commando, right? <laughs> Essentially. And it is it is the Navy's version of its most elite warfighters. Is that fair? That's fair. Okay. Yeah, yeah there, there is like a top tier within the SEAL teams. Right. No, no, right. right. Yeah. There's, there's even what, yeah. SEAL Team 6, yeah? Yeah, it used to be called SEAL Team 6. Yeah. yeah. What's it called now? It's called... Uh, I don't know what it's called now, but uh, I think a lot of I think it's public now that it's called or it was for a while called Development Group. But oh, it wasn't yeah. just SEALs. It, the Development Group was Navy SEALs and Green Berets and yeah. combat control technicians. Yeah. I it's, love uh, that it's called Development Group. It's like the most innocuous, <laughs> right? Right, right. No, right, like, right. Dev Group. Yeah, and I, like, I mean, there's all these acronyms you guys have to learn too. I, right. You know, well, the yeah. acronyms are ridiculous, well you especially to like, Jason and I, who both have dyslexia. We'd be, you know, sending the wrong <laughs> the group. <laughs> but uh, so, uh, so as you're, um, I guess, advancing or moving in that universe, like what what did you see as your future? Like, what were you hoping would be? What yeah, opportunity do you hope for as a SEAL? Right, yeah, that, that's a good question because it's like that was the goal, right? It was to be a SEAL, and I didn't really have goals beyond that as I was aspiring to that goal, which was, I don't know, maybe, maybe a weakness, a chink in my arm or whatever. Um, you know, that once I got there, I, I was there, and I maybe let my guard down probably too much. Well, no, um, but if you climb Mount Everest, that's and once you get there, I mean, what else is there but – there's other mountains. That's what that is. Right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So yeah. when you okay, so you're able but, to after through all of this, you realize you were able to apply, and even after you apply, what what like what is that what is that process, and and then how do you actually get to go to the part that I explain is so grueling because you have to do all this crazy stuff that just nobody else does. The training. 
Yeah. So, so as an officer, like I mentioned from the Naval Academy, it's really competitive to get into the SEAL teams as an officer. Um, if you want to join the SEAL teams, um, they're, they're, they can't get enough enlisted guys um, to get through the program. So, mm-hmm. so they pretty much take as many enlisted guys as, as will as can pass the basic right, entrance right. test. So, um, but yeah, to get the lateral transfer, I kind of did a little bit of cold calling to uh, the, the SEAL team commanding officers. Got an interview with one of them who had also done a lateral transfer, mm-hmm. and and he, I guess he liked my story, and um, I, I ended up getting the lateral transfer. Um, you also have to, so there's this basic entrance test of like push up, sit ups. Actually, it starts with a 500 yard swim, uh, push up, sit ups, pull ups, and a mile and a half run. And that's just and, to see if you qualify. Right, right. Um, and as an officer, you need like the minimum, the bare minimums kind of mean nothing on that. You need to be up in this competitive range. It's really hard. <laughs> how, how fast did you have to run a mile and a half? Uh, nine minutes in, but this is in pants and boots. Right, right. It's it's not in running gear. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So real quick, I just want to. And, uh, and that, that was to be competitive. I think right. the the minimum standard was like twelve minutes or something like that. So when you when you actually get accepted, and now you can you can really go through the training. Can you explain to people what what that training is like, um, and and just you know why it is regarded as so difficult. I don't know if I can describe it <laughs> other than as I go go watch Discovery Channel or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But, well, no, is it, is it just? But, um, what, what but kinds it's, of it's six months, right? So the first uh, the first five weeks, I think, is is a lot of just um, physical exercise. So you're doing a lot of calisthenics first thing in the morning. You know, you get up at like five a.m. You do a lot of calisthenics, um, and then you'll do maybe some. So paddling these things called IBS is uh, inflatable boat small, right? Why is it out of order? But whatever. <laughs> um, so you paddle, you, you do the obstacle course, you do beach runs sometime in, in really deep, soft sand, which is excruciating yeah. uh, sometimes. Um, but like, what are you thinking this is for? Because, I mean, it's it's like, <sighs> do you think you're going to be doing this once you're a SEAL? So, so it's uh, physical conditioning is what it is, sure. and it's so the training is called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition Seal Training, right? And what most people don't have a grasp of, you know, they see they see the Discovery Channel stuff, and like, oh my gosh, that's like the hardest thing I've ever seen. But it's that's just the basic training. Mm-hmm. When you get to the teams. Or even before you, you get to the teams, you go through SEAL qualification training, which is even harder than the basic training. I mean, it's a lot of the same stuff, but it's just like the next level. Right, right. And, and then you get to the teams and you do even harder stuff. Like the guys who do winter warfare, I've heard of them, you know, going out with 200 pounds of gear on their back. I can't even imagine, you know, having been through SEAL training, like I can't imagine carrying that much gear on my back. So you got a large person on your back. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, and and moving for yes. you know however far they they need to move to to do their their mission. You know, because that a could couple happen miles in real life. Or something. Yeah, that you could have to carry your comrade someplace. And yeah, that's and, what's and I could do that for 
a little while. You know? Right, right. Well, I mean, but you and I want you to be able to do it. I guess. If, so I guess, what did you learn about yourself when you're doing this? What yeah. are you thinking about what did your you find capabilities? Out about what did I find out about myself? Yeah. Um, it's not know, just that like, you can like, do hard things. No, yeah. no, no. Hear, hear me uh, out here. I guess it's a, that I, I was really blessed to have the ability to to make it through all that. You know, when you, when you see. How many people really want it just as much as I did? Um, and some of them didn't make it, right? Mm-hmm. They, they got injured. They got stress fractures three times in a row. Because when you get injured, if you, you, know, if you were pulled because you were injured and you didn't just quit, they'll let you try again. They'll let you sit, sit out a class and then come back in the you know, two the, classes yeah, yeah. later, mm-hmm. you know, once you're healed, whatever, yeah. and try again. And th- they give you three chances. Um, and people would get hurt all three times. Yeah. Uh, did you find that you were stronger uh, mentally than you thought you might have been, or do you feel like you just you just lucky enough you had that all along? I, I think I always went into it with the mindset of, you know, I'm not I'm not going to give up even if I'm crawling down the beach, you know, when everybody else is running. <laughs> because I, not everybody has uh, that. You know what I'm saying? Like the, p- part of the physical part, I get that. But the mental part to uh, to overcome these kinds of obstacles is is kind of what what I'm trying to get at here. Right. And that that seems to be something that sets you and other people like you apart. Yeah. What did you? Well, I mean, did <laughs> no, you I mean, see how that? Did you get a, there? I, mean, I, I don't you, know how I got there. I, it's just like I want. I wanted to do this, and so you did it, <laughs> and, and I knew that's what it took. Mm-hmm. So I went into it with that mindset. But when you look around you and you see other, uh, you know, sailors or soldiers or whatever that you think they're people that you admire, people that you think are strong enough, tough enough, whatever. Um, did you see something in common with those guys and you? Did you see something that helped you? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and maybe, maybe this is like another weakness. So I'm, I'm an introvert, and maybe. Uh, dare I say, a bit narcissistic. Like, I probably wasn't paying enough attention to what the mm. other people were doing. Because you were uh, focusing your, on your own thing. Right. Yeah. right. Okay. Um, so which I don't is, know. Which is something that I coach, I mean, we've all played sports, yeah. tells you to do, right? You control you. You mm-hmm. do. You have to run your own race, even if there's a team uh, that's at stake. But, um, but, but, I mean, and you... Do do you have more thoughts on the whole idea of actually being a seal? So, Carol, I, I want to come back because I, I want to get back to the to the mental part of this. This because to me, what sets you and people like you apart, I believe, is your ability to summon uh, the not just the will, but the uh, the mental acuity to be great at something, no matter how difficult it is, and and figure out a way to make it happen for yourself, and so. When others hear this, I'd like to be able, for them to be able to understand what they might be able to do, even if it's not trying to be a seal. You know, you want to try to reach a goal. What can you do to, you know, even when you just want to, I mean, you think to yourself, you might want to give up. You're like, nope, not going to happen. Well, but, uh, when okay. we come back, okay, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll have him uh, answer that question. <laughs> I've just pulled one of Amy's things here, right? Uh, and uh, we'll talk more with Ian Hogue when we come back. This is Voices of Reason.
Jason Lee, Amy Donaldson, Voices of Reason, speaking today with Ian Hogue, uh, who's a friend of mine who is a former Navy SEAL and has done some very amazing things in his life that we're going to get to hopefully in the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Uh, the first, though, that uh, that really uh, jumped out at me. Among the amazing among things. Among the many amazing <laughs> things uh, is you became a Navy SEAL. And one of one of the things I, I think that's really important is for people to understand, beside the physical things you have to go through, because a lot of people can do those things sometimes, uh, but to be, what do you have to do to get mentally prepared to overcome whatever obstacle you have to actually achieve a goal like uh, that you just described, for instance, uh, becoming a SEAL? I don't know. Like, like I said, it was just, it was the mindset I went into it with of just knowing that I would keep going until, you know, even if I was crawling when everyone else was running, I would keep, I would keep going. And I was just how I went into it. But honestly, I, I feel like I learned more when, when it all went wrong. Okay. <laughs> when it, things didn't work out for me. Um, you know, I got to a SEAL team and I, I feel like they made some mistakes. I definitely made some uh, critical mistakes and, um, and, and that was like my rock bottom is when, um, there was a loss of confidence and I realized that I wasn't going to have a career in the SEAL teams. Um, and I had what, to What do you mean when it went wrong? To, like you weren't, like you didn't get the assignment you wanted, you screwed up? What, what? I, yeah, I screwed up. Um, and, um, and my commanding officer, you know, he was really great about it. You know, he said, you know. So, so typically when this happens to like ship captains, right, Uh, it's called a loss of confidence when, you know, whoever's in charge of the ship captains, um, doesn't trust them to be in charge of that ship anymore. So it also happens to, um, officers in charge of, of SEAL platoons. I was an, um, assistant officer in charge and, um, they didn't have the confidence for me to lead uh, a platoon or even a squad into combat. So, um, and, and I really don't want to go into no, no, the okay. details sure, sure. No. Of, of all the things that went wrong. I don't there. think it matters if we're going to draw, because obviously we've not had anything like that, but everyone's been in the position where we've made a mistake and the people that trust us most now have lost a little bit of confidence in us. And like, what do you, how do you reconcile that? What right, do you do? Right. Um, so, so my commanding officer told me about, um, this this thing in the Navy called engineering duty, where um, so I had my engineering degree from the Naval Academy, and um, they would send me to graduate school to to get a graduate degree in in engineering, uh, and then I could go on and and um, what engineering duty officers do in the Navy is kind of oversee uh, contract uh, contracts contracting. Um, and programs for the acquisition and maintenance of weapon systems, I guess. Hmm. Where does one go to uh, get an uh, engineering <laughs> a degree to do this? So so I had the choice of going to either the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, which would have been awesome. I would have loved that, <laughs> right? Monterey, California. Um, right, yeah, yes. Monterey, California, or um, going to MIT if I, got, if I could get accepted to MIT. And I grew up in Boston, so... I was like, well, I could go home for two or three years. Um, so I applied to MIT and got in, and that was 
honestly, that was scarier to me than going into SEAL training. I don't believe you. <laughs> because, like I said, like I, I kind of had like uh, times of mediocre grades in high school and at the Naval Academy. But and, you got in. And I got in, right? And, um, but and it's I not just a matter of will. It's more, right. it's dif- it's more difficult, right? Yeah, I and I knew I was going to be um, in an environment where I was surrounded by people who were way, you know, I wasn't even in their ballpark. Like I, I was but telling Jason, that, but that's not true. You were in their ballpark. Well, you, you go to the same school they do. <laughs> no, but, so, but you, but you do have that moment where you're like, "Am I the smartest person in the room, or the dumbest person in the room, right. or somewhere?" Yeah, in but the if middle, you're the dumbest right? person in the room at MIT, that makes you a sure, genius. Sure, <laughs> but you're still like in that room. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, there were times when I felt like I was the dumbest person in the room for sure. Because <laughs> you, know, like, yeah, you told me about this one yeah, guy. Yeah. yeah, there was this guy. Um, we're in uh, nuclear fusion. 201 or 101 maybe um so it's all this uh, super high level like differential equations um and i look over this this kid next to me in my study group he's sitting there looking at a list of words and he's like a national scrabble champion or something like that and he's learning he's memorizing all of the different words that you can make from combination of letters and he's the smartest guy in the class like he's the one getting the highest grade on every single test. He's blowing the, the curve. curve buster. You know, right? yeah. so that's yeah. the thing that scared me about MIT yeah. is like those classes are designed for people like him. So he's getting, you know, in the 90s on the test, I'm getting like 20s on these tests. Yeah, but you and everybody else. <laughs> yeah, most, right, right, yeah. yeah there, were, there were other people in the class yeah, getting right, grades. Right, right. I ended up dropping that class, by the way. But, <laughs> but <laughs> so, even what I probably so then passed, but. if you're not... If what you learn about yourself in the physical challenges is like it's just a matter of not quitting, right? Like so yeah. you're going to have to your body's going to have to give up before your mind does. What are you learning about the mental challenges of being at MIT about yourself? Is it um, the same thing? You just keep go- showing up and you just keep doing the work? Yeah, so that was that was different because um like like in that class I I learned that I do have limitations, right? Um, and, and I, like I said, I ended up dropping that class. So, um, there are times when it does make sense to say enough is enough. Um, I didn't need to take that class. Um, the Navy was paying me to go to MIT to, to learn nuclear engineering, to be able to, um, manage projects on, on aircraft carrier and submarine propulsion plants, which are nuclear fission. This class that I dropped was for nuclear fusion, right? So, Fission is splitting of large atoms like uranium. Fusion is combining small atoms like hydrogen, which we're still trying to figure out. I think I saw last week that uh, we set a new record of like 100 seconds or something like that of a fusion reaction that was making more energy than it took to start it or something. Okay. Yeah. So so we're still working on that. We, we haven't figured that out yet. This is right? still high-level stuff that so, you guys are working on. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. So, so I was like, wouldn't it be cool if I studied fusion and got it and was able to like help the Navy use nuclear fusion instead of fission? But when I got into that class and I realized that I was in over my head, I was like, I don't need to do this. Um, I'll drop this so that I can – actually get the grades I need to stay in this program that the Navy requires mm-hmm. me to get. So, I mean, again, because you, you mentioned that you, in, in this case, it seems like you learn more about yourself from kind of... Uh, Bumping up a, against a, a, your a, limitations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A challenge you came in, in contact with 
than you would if you'd have just been successful all along, right? Right. And, th- and that was kind of an epiphany moment for me. I was like, I was like, okay, now I'm just going to focus on doing what is required of me by the Navy, which is still like way above the graduation requirements from MIT. Um, and I'm going to enjoy this experience as much as I can. I'll still get, you know, I'm still surrounded by all these amazing, wonderful people and I can get as much out of that experience as I can. Um, but I can also go out and enjoy other things. So I, I went out and, um, I'd been wanting to do this thing called adventure racing for years and years. Um, I had a classmate at the Naval Academy who was training for this thing called, uh, the eco challenge, um, which I don't know if anybody has watched the, the TV show survivor, Mark Burnett, before he created survivor, he created this other TV show called eco challenge and they just brought it back to Amazon last year. Um, I think I watched one episode of that. Yeah, it's crazy. So I had friends doing that, and and what one kind of my of classmates at the that? Naval Academy w- did that, right? And mm-hmm. I was like, if she can do that, there's no reason I can't do that. Um, well, can you explain some of the things that you would have to do in the sequel? Challenge? So, so yeah, so adventure racing is um, it, it's um, a team sport where you have a team, you know, traditionally is a team sport of four people co-ed. Um, so you have to have at least one guy and one woman. Um, and it's an unmarked course where you have to navigate with a map and compass and find little checkpoints, mm-hmm. sometimes hidden out in the woods or, or sometimes at fairly obvious locations like trail intersections. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's multidiscipline. So biking, running, paddling, mm-hmm. sometimes swimming, sometimes they'll throw ropes in where you're rappelling or ascending, um, you know, rock climbing, things like that. Um, there have been races that have included things like rollerblading and horseback riding, <laughs> so um, all kinds of stuff. So what's great about this is, again, it goes back to one of the things you're really good at, which is uh, some of the physical stuff, but it also makes you use your brain, which you've come to find out you have great qualities in that too, but you also have to use it in a way that uh, best serves you. Right. It, it, you know, <sighs> like you say, some, some disciplines, not yours, then somebody else has to do that rather than run up against that wall. You're like, okay, let's figure out a way to do this that we can all be successful doing this. Right. Yeah. But so you, did you start adventure racing while you were still in the military? No. Okay. No. Well, yes, yes, I did. So I started it while I was at, um, at MIT. Okay. Um, and cause you didn't have enough to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, was MIT. it a break though from like a, a, a different kind of challenge might be a little sure, bit. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, it was recreation. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> So, so how long were you in the military? Eleven years. Okay, and what made you decide to leave? Um, so, after MIT, I became an engineering duty officer, mm-hmm. working at the shipyards. I was assigned to Puget Sound Naval Shipyard. I was supposed to be there for three years. Um, <clears throat> when I first got there, they they detached me to Everett, Washington, which is just across Puget Sound from the main shipyard mm-hmm. to to manage. Repair projects on surface warfare ships, so frigates, you know, ships that I was used to Mm -hmm. serving on. And after six months there, um, my first son had just been born, and the commanding officer called me up and informed me that my number had come up to go help out the Army in Afghanistan. So I went to about a month or two of training for that, then went to Afghanistan for six months, Came back um, and, you know, 
kind of got in that conversation with the commanding officer before I went to Afghanistan. I said, when I come back, I want to come back to the main shipyard and work on nuclear ships. So I said, okay. So when I got back, um, I went to the main shipyard in, in Bremerton. We planned an aircraft carrier overhaul for six months. But the thing about this was we were going to do the overhaul down in San Diego. Oh, so I spent six months planning it in Bremerton, moved down to San Diego. Um, there's another story there. But anyway, ended up working on two aircraft carriers for six months, moved back to Bremerton. And like I said, my first son was born during this time and we had moved. You know, so then I was coming, I was six months away from the end of that assignment mm-hmm. and I was going to have to move again. So that would have been six moves in three years. And my wife and I were like, there's no guarantee this is going to get any better. Like, even though I'm not in this war fighting billet anymore, there's just so much going on in the world that I might have to go overseas or wherever mm-hmm. um, quite frequently. And, and the best we're going to do is moving every two to three years. Um, I mean, that's just the way it is it for officers. Anywhere in the military, you change jobs every two to three years. Um, so we actually did a lot of praying and about what what to do with the rest of my life, and and that was a real eye opening experience too. When we come back, we'll find out how how after how those that prayer prayers, was answered. that's right, how, yeah. how it was answered. Yeah, God, your story is great, man. Uh, when we come back, we'll have more from Ian Hogue. This is Voices of Reason. Jason Lee, Amy Donaldson back. Uh, this is our last segment, and, and there's so much to go to, so I, I'm going to try to get you going here, Ian. Uh, you you realize at this point, uh, you're toward the end of your career, you have to make a decision. Right. Whether you want to stick with this military thing or move on to something else. And uh, you said you and your wife, you went and you prayed about it. Right. So, um, you know, in the Navy, I feel like the Navy does a lot of good things, um, but during my time at MIT, I started to think about, you know, what are the big problems facing the world? And one of the big problems that I see is how are we going to keep generating energy for an exponentially increasing population um, and do it without polluting the world terribly, right? You know, it's, it's just going to keep getting worse if we keep doing what we're doing. So I want. I really wanted to get into the energy industry, uh, the energy sector, and start to understand what those challenges were to that transformation that I felt like needed to happen or needs to happen and is happening right now. And that's one of the wonderful things that I get to see now is is and and be a part of this transformation that's happening. Because right now you <clears throat> your your regular job is right. So I right now I work for a big utility um, as uh, as a senior engineer. And I gather cost and technical information for any sort of um, electricity generating resource that we might want to build for the next decade or two. And then I get to do some of the the uh, early project development when we do decide to build things. And you find that fulfilling why? So, so that information then feeds into a modeling group who kind of tries to figure out what's going to be the best thing for our customers 
what's going to be the best combination of, of generation resources. Um, and, um, and it's really neat to see the, the transformation from, you know, coal and gas being the, uh, kind of the, the lowest cost, most reliable resource to this future of a lot of renewables, which aren't quite as renewable or, or quite as reliable. But um, then there's then there's this energy storage piece that you can apply to make it more reliable. But still, it'll never get there. Uh, you know, if you're trying to get to 100% renewable generation, mm-hmm. um, you know, it could, but it would just take this astronomical amount of, of energy storage to to give you the 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 same level of reliability, so it's really an exciting time where we're dealing with all these challenges, um, and and at the same time there's there's this huge human element of the people who are, um, who are working at those coal mines, those coal plants, those right. gas plants. Just my personal like recreation thing, um, kind of an escape, maybe yeah. Um, and an escape and and um you know i guess it, it i have never really thought about it until you asked but it because it's a team sport mm-hmm. it forced me to reach out to people that i wouldn't have otherwise reached out to to try to form you know friendships and and i have just the most amazing friendships from um being involved in in racing um, right, because as an introvert, that's not your natural uh, right. tendency, right? Well, right. and one of the things a lot of um, people miss when they leave the military is this idea that everywhere you go, you got a team. Like, you're not, you're not, even if you have an individual duty, you have a lot of people have your back. Yeah, yeah. That that was probably the scariest thing about leaving the military is, um, you know, th- there was this one company I went and worked for for like a month after I got out, <laughs> and. Nobody had my back. <laughs> like, like, literally, my, the the CEO of the company, I remember her saying at one point, the only reason we haven't fired this guy yet is because I haven't figured out how to. And, I was and like, talking about you. No, no, no. Oh, I was talking oh, about someone else. else. But I was like, ding, 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 ding. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, that applies to me, too. Yeah. <laughs> like, she's just trying to figure out how to fire me. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so after a month, they're like, you know what? This We don't need you. Yeah. Take a hike. Yeah. <laughs> well, and again, they did you a favor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah so was that transition hard for you? Um, yeah, it was scary. It was really scary. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and that that being my first experience in the civilian sector, that was another thing. Like I went into the interview and I was talking about like military versus civilians and I had no idea that this was offensive to, to somebody to refer to them as civilians. I was like. No, like it's just a differentiation. I don't know. <laughs> like, to let you it's know. Just to to anybody. I don't know, but the guy interviewing me was offended that I was talking about civilians. Um, so, uh, may, I don't know. Maybe it was no, just but like I mean, a, that does give you some insight because I always wondered like why veterans had a harder time getting jobs after they leave the military, which is a fact. It's an absolute fact. And I thought it seems to me that companies would be scrambling I, totally. to hire veterans, right? But right. it's Nobody maybe would. what you're saying is like this – this dynamic of you thinking we're all on the same team, everyone has each other's back versus a company where people are competing for the boss's attention or reward, you know, individual rewards might be different. I don't know. I've always just been baffled by why that is an issue in this country. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, l- luckily, one of the the things I loved about engineering duty in the Navy was the training they gave me in project management um, uh, and leadership that I hadn't had before. It was like a next level of of leadership mm-hmm. uh, that went along with project management, and all of that was really transferable um, outside of the Navy, um, and it's what got me the, the next job that I had for a few years, and and then also my job that I have now. So. You mentioned too the, when we were talking kind of offline at some point that you also realize being in the Navy serves you because. And especially since you you actually been in combat, so you know what what it's well you you've been in places where there have been combat, I should yeah. say. Yeah. So uh, the uh, you know what what a real life and death situation could look like, and when you when you have a challenge or when you have something that people in a, in civilian life think this is you know really this really is the tough. end of the world. This yeah. the end of the world right? <laughs> You're like not really. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> explain how you know that changes your perspective and allows you to have something. That uh, gives you an advantage, I mean, even in civilian life, in, in terms of being able to accomplish goals uh, when it comes to uh, doing your job. Um, yeah, well, thing we were talking about the other day, um, so my first real job after I left the Navy was doing project management for a, a small construction company. And, um, and my office mate was a retired Marine Corps pilot. And when when things would get a little bit stressful or challenging – we just look at each other and be like, hey, there's no one shooting at us. <laughs> yeah. This isn't that bad. Right, right. My dad used to say no one's dead or dying, so we're okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, I mean, that, that helps too. But yeah. let's, let's go up to this adventure thing. You know, so you, you start these things. You're able to start a, a successful career. But, uh, again, you, you, you find interest outside of work. And you choose something that, you know, to the average person. And Amy does this too, right? I, I, I have no idea – why anybody or how, how they just get through 100 miles and now you're about to do – Amy's about to do something with this, 150 miles is some team thing. Yeah. And you do these adventure races that also involve, you know, great distances with, uh, you know, physical, you know, just mind-blowingly uh, challenging stuff. How, how, do you, how do you get there and how do you get so much joy out of it? I guess I just go into it with the – with some passion that I get to see just these spectacular places um, that most people don't get to see. And cause you mountain bike. Yeah. I mountain bike. I, I trail run. Um, I paddle, you know, most, and, and most of the training for these things is pretty mundane. You know, I'm like running up and down the same mountainside mm-hmm. day after day, you know, if I'm training for, for a hundred mile run, um, or like I'll go paddling on the Jordan River, just the, the river that runs through Salt Lake City. It's an inner city river. There's trash all over the place. Homeless people living on the banks. I have seen a beaver there though, because I fell yes. off my paddleboard in the river. <laughs> right. So there's still like these amazing <laughs> yeah. things that you can see. Like see, it, that's the thing. Like I, my friend and I yeah. paddled 26 miles or 20 miles of it. Yeah. Um, in a canoe one time, and saw 26 beavers in that 20 in those 20 miles. And for me. <clears throat> I always am like I vacillate between this, like you say, this monotony of training and doing the same thing over and over, but also that it's never the same thing. Right. And that there's always something different and crazy and unexpected in in that and, and beautiful. Like there's plenty of times where I've been like 
this is terrible. Why did I do this? I'm freezing. I can't feel my feet. I have a blister <laughs> on the back yeah. of my heel and I'm hating everything that I ate the day before. And then I see the sunrise and I'm like, I'm so lucky. Like yeah. this is the reward. Yeah. So it's just that mixture. And that's what life so, is, right? It's always, you never have, I was just writing this morning in my, my journal about how the best days never start the best. Like you never, and I, and I, and I was listening to a, an audio book where they said, when you have grief or something bad happen, you always remember the last best thing, right? The mm-hmm. mo- that last moment of joy, that last really delicious breakfast or whatever it was, right? You always, so, and that's to me what um, all endurance sports give you is this idea that life is just a big mashup of really crappy stuff. And then these really spectacular, transcendent, beautiful moments. And you have to be smart enough <laughs> and with it enough to recognize them. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah, most of life is just the mundane. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, you get, you know, if you can recognize those beautiful moments and how you got to those beautiful moments and just you you know, showed up. Re- remember that yeah. and, and keep showing up and, and doing what got you there. Um, you know, you can find that passion in, in just about anything. We're coming down to the close of this. I was hoping you could kind of share, what, what what would you tell people who aspire to different things? And maybe they think, you know, like you did uh, initially, you got to your goal, but there's there's still more. How do you, how do you say to yourself, even though you, you, you think you may want to go someplace, either there's either other paths to get there, or there may be things that you didn't know that you could do but you you can always strive to do more. In other words, the peak of Everest is not is not right, the right. goal. Right, <laughs> it's yeah. just part of the journey. So that, that's actually another thing that I loved about engineering. Duty. They made us build this plan for our entire career, and they told us up front. They said, "You're going to build this plan, and it's not going to happen. It's going to be completely different." But the fact that you have a plan and you can see where you are on that plan and see um, you know what's co- what you know is coming up, then you can make more informed decisions, and and just the process of of making that plan, you can think about what do I want to do at this point in my life. You know, like it made me realize that hey, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have kids, and I'm gonna be caring for them until they're at least 18 years old, and probably even beyond that. But you know, I'm I'm pretty much stuck, you know, helping my kids grow and develop for at least those 18 years, um, you know, in my house. Mm -hmm. Right. And then after that, I might be able to move around a little more. Right. Or, you know, if I want to give them the benefit of, of having a a stable childhood in one neighborhood, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, it's those kinds of things. Those big picture, uh, you know, if you look at your, your life from like this big picture of like, you know, there's these phases in your life, and this is how they're going to impact everything else in your life. So, like, if I want to have a career where maybe I end up influence, influencing policy in Washington, D.C., I don't want to live in Washington, D.C. while my kids are, are growing up and developing. But maybe I can do that later on in my life, mm-hmm. right? And I always want to say, you know, not everybody gets to do these big crazy things. So if if, if you're – aspirations don't necessarily involve going to MIT or getting a graduate degree, whatever it is you're trying to do, you still have to have the same mindset that it's 
this is your plan. You can still accomplish these goals no matter, you know, how divergent they can be. Right. Or or if it doesn't go according to the plan, if you don't accomplish the goal that you put on the plan, that you can make alternate plans. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so it, you can strive no yeah. matter what. Yeah. yeah. Find something else that uh, that will be meaningful. Excellent. I, I really appreciate you doing this for me, man. Uh, God, oh, this is a story. Uh, <laughs> now we all feel like underachievers, but thanks but a lot, okay. Ian. <laughs> but we know we can do some stuff because uh, if you... There's still time. There's still time. If you right? just think about what he said earlier, it's like, it just never occurred to him that he couldn't do it. No, that you know, and I've met athletes like you before yeah. in covering sports 20 That's years. Fantastic. I'm always wondering how do people do it, and they're always wondering why no, did no, he quit. It, it did occur to yeah. me that it might not yeah. work out. Like, yeah. like I said, like yeah. even if I'm like crawling while everyone else is running, like that might be the end. Like they might yeah. pull me and say, you're not good enough, right? Yeah, but that's how it was going to end. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and like I said, I didn't have that – at that time, I didn't have that plan of what else would I do or what would I do next. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, right. So you had to develop that going yeah. Okay, well. yeah, and that's where I learned the most was in in having that failure and then having to and – then, and then having that job where I had mentors who said, hey, make a plan for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically <laughs> – and then having to go through that whole thought process is what really um, pulled me out of the, the dumps, really. Excellent, excellent. Okay, uh, join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at voramed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast in all the places where you find podcasts. And, uh, you know, be sure to review our show. We love getting your feedback. It helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee along with Amy Donaldson. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.